Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I want to introduce to you today's guest, Sarah Hepola. Sarah is the author of the best-selling book, Blackout, and the upcoming Unattached. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, Bloomberg, Business Week, Salon, Elle, Glamour, Texas Monthly, and so many places. Sarah is an incredible human being, and I learned so much from talking to her and hearing about just how... Culture has shifted and changed so much and gone back and forth and ebbed and flowed over the years of what it expects out of women just trying to figure out what it means to be women and what that looks like. Sarah was so, so kind and gracious in talking to me today about addiction and her journey with alcohol and quitting drinking and what that looks like for her relationship with her body and just what that story even is in general, which is a conversation that I'm very new to, but very interested in. So I was really excited to get to learn from her. But anyway, I hope you enjoy and I will see you next time. If you guys are enjoying the Unity Project podcast and you want to support and get more involved, then I would be so, so honored and just thankful if you went over to my Patreon page for the Unity Project where you can give as little as $1 a month and become a big part of why I get to actually make this podcast and to help me continue to make this podcast and continue having these really cool interviews about topics that I really think are going to change the world if we talk about more. Or you can go pick up a copy of my book, Finding Home. You can do that at my website, JackieGronland.com. Or if you can't afford to support me financially, that is absolutely okay. Leaving a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to podcasts, that helps so, so much more than I think we give credit to. So any of those things are wonderful. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. going down in Texas where it is so cold right now. <laughs> yes, it is quite cold. Um, I am warm. I am I'm lucky and warm. Oh, wow. Okay. That's awesome. Now you're from Dallas, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Grew up in Dallas. Still live here. Okay. Awesome. Well, Sarah, do you want to give uh, my listeners just a quick little intro about who you are, what you do, and kind of like your interest in this topic? Sure. Uh, I'm a writer, journalist person. Uh, (laughs) I have been working as a reporter in the kind of alternative journalism space for like 20 years. And I've been, you know, I I used to cover music and film and then I started doing personal essays and, um, you know, there's, oh shoot. Oh, Sorry. No worries. We're phoning a friend here. It's a very important part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to tell me what I do for a living. I, you stumped uh, me with the first question. Oh, no. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, let's see. I'm a journalist, been a journalist for 20 years. And um, about five years ago, I wrote a memoir that was about my relationship with drinking, um, which was called Blackout. Mm. Uh, so you can guess that the, the relationship was a slightly tortured one. Um, 
And so since then, you know, I've just been a, a freelance writer and I'm working on a second book, um, but which is about my relationship with my own single status, you know, the, the fact that I'm in my 40s now and I've never been married and never had a kid and those were not things that I had intended mm-hmm. for my life. Um, so my, my interest in the body, oh my gosh, I mean, I think in some ways that's what I've been writing about my whole life without really knowing it. I think it's, it's part of what drew me to writing. I know it's part of what drew me to drinking was trying to escape the discomfort that I felt in my body. And then a lot of the work of my last year since I quit drinking, which I quit drinking 10 years ago, has been about trying to get back into my body and trying to reconnect, find that place. Um, you know, I think drinking was something that appealed to me because it gave me freedom in my body, but then it also created these new, you know, kind of cages, new problems. So anyway, so that, that's what it is. I mean, that, I, I, I hesitate to sound as totally navel gazing as this, but like, I think about my relationship with my body all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, it's something that I've often wondered if, if that's, everybody is like that. And I'm just a little bit more, um, upfront about it, or maybe I have like a particular self-obsession, but either way, uh, I'm, I'm a good candidate for your podcast. Yeah, I can tell that is, that is very, very cool and very relatable, especially when you were talking about your relationship with drinking, which I have so many questions about because I'm very new in that conversation, but there's so much, I, I can't remember if we were recording yet, but, uh, you said that you started looking at your relationship with your body when you stopped drinking? Well, I think um, when I stopped drinking, it became clear to me that I needed to heal my relationship with my body. That, 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 that part of what I was trying to drink away was a sense of discomfort in my own skin. And because I had to carry my body around with me, it's the home that we carry through the world. You can't really take it off and on. Drinking had become a way to take it off and on. It had become a way to check out. And so when I quit drinking, which I did not because I wanted to do, but because I felt that I needed to do it. And that's a longer story that we can talk about because the decision to quit drinking is very intense and confusing and It takes a long time. It's not like people always think you do it in a day. And it's like there was like this lightning moment. It's like there were like 500 lightning moments. But anyway, um, you know, when I quit, then it just became powerfully clear to me that I was going to have to find a way to make peace with my own body. Because this thing that I had used, which was drinking, which was the release, which was the checkout, I didn't have that anymore. And so how can I how can I do that? Um, and so that was 10 years ago and it's been a really, like, I, I don't think this is something that you finish and you get, you place the mission accomplished flag on. I think you do it all the rest of your life. Mm, Yeah. Just one big process. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess that being said, uh, the first question I generally ask people, which at this point might be moving backwards, but would you mind describing the relationship that you have with your body right now? Right now. Yes. Well, I'm 46 years old. And so, but what's interesting about 
my coming into middle age was that I have a better relationship with my body than I have for much of my life. Um, I like my body. I like moving around in it. I feel pretty good about it. One of the frustrations of middle age, though, is that things that you, you, you start to kind of accept the things like, oh, all my childhood, I was just like, my thighs. Like, well, it was my teen years, you know, like my thighs, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. And now I'm like, it's cool, my thighs are fine. But it's like, oh, but my neck. <laughs> you know, mm. you're like, you, it's not fair because you feel like you make peace with these things that have been taunting you. And then all these other things come up and are like, ooh, but what about your jowls? Or like, <laughs> or like, what about this thing? And, you know, I aging is really like this advanced practice of acceptance of course we're all aging all the time it's not like Mm -hmm. but you you, but you really start to notice it in middle age but honestly I I really like my body it's good I feel very grateful to have gotten this far and be healthy like I feel like um I'm I have a much more a robust sense of what I have as opposed to you know when I was younger it was a lot of like what I don't have you know I don't have long legs and I'm not tall and I'm you know I have you know it's just all the grievance list but yeah yeah. that makes a lot of sense and that's so encouraging to hear especially after reading some of the things that uh, you were writing about I guess with talking with other women and whatnot about the aging process and how Mm -hmm. it's just, it sounds to me just like one big race of like never enough. And it's like, Mm. okay, well now we're going to focus on this and this. And it's like never just in the present moment. Here I am. This is me. And I'm not trying to like shape shift anything. Well, I I think that, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and I'm sure you talk about this all the time, but like we, you know, we, we, we live in a consumer society where, and, you know, one of the great and terrible things about American culture is that there was, there's always going to be somebody there to sell something to you that can fix you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the great things that's happened for my generation of women is that we've stayed hotter longer. I guess, I think, guess it's great. It feels great to me because I'm dating younger men and it works and that's great. But mm-hmm. the, the, the mixed blessing of that is... You have to work so hard to stay hot. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, this is so much work. Like our mothers didn't have to like think about this stuff when they were in their 40s and 50s, did they? Because they were married, they had kids. But, you know, if you're if you're single and you're still dating or sometimes even if you're not, um, you still want to want to look a certain way. And that demand to look a certain way, like there's there's I think there's something cool about it because it means you're alive and you're trying and then there's something like so sad about it because it's like like you said like never enough and then meanwhile we live in this this entrepreneurial culture that just is going to sell you a million things Uh and you know my my friend makes this joke about the beauty product called hope in a jar you know like there's actually this thing called hope in a jar yeah And it's like, that's a product. And it's like a little on the nose, but it's like, you know, you go to any Sephora, I live in Dallas, which is like, 
it's like very known for its beauty culture. But this mm. is, you know, this is a countrywide thing. Like Sephora is doing really well. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're booming business. They're up there. <laughs> and, and and it's not just forty six year olds that are buying Sephora. I mean, this is like eighteen year olds that are like, I'm going to contour my. F-. You know, they're dealing with the never enough problem. Yeah, so the never enough problem just just basically it it uh, it reaches you at every age. Mm-hmm. And I can promise you, if the 40-somethings had been cut out of this, they'd be like, no marketers care about us. But then, of course, the marketers do care. So we're like, ah, we're being preyed upon. This isn't fair. Oh, you my know? gosh. It's, it's just, you know, it's that thing where, like, um, you as a person in the world have to build up your own shield to feel that you're okay in the world. And yeah. there will always be people telling you that you're not. And there will always be opportunities to fix yourself and you have to decide, like, what's your relationship going to be with all those things? Yeah, wow. What what you're saying brings up so much, especially when you talk about, like, the 18-year-olds going into Sephora trying to contour their faces. Like, I can't (laughs) remember a time in my life other than when I was, like, young trying to be a tomboy. (laughs) Um, I can't remember a time where I wasn't like obsessively trying to see like, okay, what do we have to do now? Like looking on the internet for like, whether it's like weight loss things or makeup things or hair, it's like just a big race. And also what you're saying reminds me, you wrote about, um, I think it was the end of your essay on fertility. Mm-hmm. And you wrote, the word empowerment gets thrown around quite a bit in stories like this, and it's usually in service of a product designed to separate women from their wallets. Mm-hmm. And that was super, very, very well said. You're an amazing writer, just side note there. Thank you. You're welcome. But also just like, just when you bring up capitalism and when you bring up uh, the beauty world like Sephora, and it's just... it it's painful to see how it all has so much to do with just controlling women's bodies with like the intent of taking their power or taking their money where it's really everybody with capitalism but with this women specifically because I was reading in uh I was telling you earlier uh, Holly's book um oh my gosh what is it called it just slipped my mind how to quit like a woman Yes, how to quit like a woman. And she was comparing, or she was talking a lot about the tobacco industry and how they made, uh, they were like, women, there's not enough women drinking, so how are we going to get women, or not drinking, women of smoking, so how are we going to get women to smoke? And they turned it into like a feminist thing. But it was really just to get their money. And so... So I would say it differently. Um, okay. I would say, because um, again, I think it's really important, like... If women weren't, when women weren't being served by the the alcohol lobby, that was seen as why do you not care about women? And mm. so when women cater, when the alcohol lobby caters to the women, then now they're being women are being preyed upon. I don't I don't think you can say both. Okay. I don't, I don't think that you can say, pay attention to us. Wait, no, don't pay attention to us. And and so within that, there has to be some personal agency, right? Uh-huh. That that we're aware that we live in this society where we're sold a million fixes. And what I would love to see is a tolerance built against that, you know? Um, that we would... That empowerment would be better served... Like, instead of selling products, you would sell people on their own sense of their own sense of power in themselves. 
I'm, it's not, you can't sell it. That's the problem. It's, 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 yeah. and I think there has to be an awareness that that's just what a market capitalist society does. I mean, I understand that we're living at a moment where people are trying to change that. Fair enough, you know, but we do live in a world where a lot of the things you and I are working on right now are the grand result of entrepreneurial capitalism. And mm. so, I mean, you, 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 we, you know, we get, that makes sense. <laughs> we, we, we get the good parts. We have to take the bad parts and the bad parts is, man, they're going to sell you fixes. And what are you going to uh. do about it? And what are you going to do about it? And, and some of them work. And the other thing is I loved drinking and uh-huh. I love makeup. So I may not in that way be the best person for your podcast because I, I don't know what your, what your audience, they may, they may not, you know, but like I loved drinking. It just didn't work for me for very long. Uh-huh. And then I loved makeup. I still love makeup because it's costuming and it's theater and it's play and it's fun. And we yeah. are in our caught in our bodies all our lives. Like you kind of want to escape. Uh-huh. And so that part of it, I want, I want to keep that part. I don't want to keep the part where I'm trying to cloth my own skin or I don't feel good or I never feel enough. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. to me, these are all like, um, they're like complex problems um, that, that require complex conversations, which is why I'm, you know, I think what you're doing is really cool. Oh, thank you. That, that was said so well, because I mean, you're right. It is extremely nuanced and especially what you said about capitalism how what you and I are doing were what did you call entrepreneurial capitalism mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that's so it's so interesting how it's all it's just very very nuanced and I love the way you talk about how you really like makeup or you even liked drinking and how and there's ways that those kinds of things I guess to talk like about makeup or even like I like love clothes I think fashion yeah. is so much fun and that could be seen as either um trying to make yourself good enough or just expressing yourself and having a good time in the home that you're carrying around like you said as our body is and it's just it's very gray you're right it's very very gray it reminds me I have one of my best friends um has a daughter who's like well I think she's like 10 now but she was eight or nine and she wanted she wanted makeup and my friend was so uncomfortable with it she didn't wear makeup as a little girl and she's so uncomfortable about about the idea of introducing that and then she was like wait a minute if I had a little boy and he asked me for makeup I'd be like oh yes absolutely Mm. (laughs) wow and it's so funny (laughs) that is funny that she would be like oh yes that's you know you absolutely should be able to play with that because it's transgressive and she would want to support that yeah. But the idea that her daughter wanted to do it was so, she was like so uncomfortable with it. So she got the makeup palette for her daughter because oh that, that was only fair, she thought. And yeah. I thought it was just one of those interesting moments um, for those of us who have grown up, you know, wanting to be thoughtful about these topics. You know, you can find yourself empathizing more with the other side or, or a different side or the underdog side or whatever it is, as opposed to empathizing with just mainstream. 
Um, uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved makeup. I've always loved play. I've always loved girly things, which has been a little tricky for me because sometimes they're derided and people make fun of being girly. Mm. Um, and so what that does sometimes is, you know, instill a certain kind of shame in a, in a girl that likes those things. But what we're trying to do is say, you don't have to conform, you know, you can choose your own things. Yeah. Yeah, that speaks a lot to what you're saying about your friend with the makeup palette. It's like yeah. offering a makeup palette to a little boy if he wants one is the opposite of conforming. That's like breaking out of like yeah. toxic masculinity. But to a girl, um, it's like the opposite. It's like the idea of not letting her have makeup is feels progressive in a way when it it's just not that black and white. Yeah, the hope, I think, I don't want to speak for my friend, but the hope is that your child would find joy in the world, find their own expression. And in fact, this is her daughter's way of expressing differently than her mom. Mm-hmm. Her mom is a, is a no makeup wearing lawyer, you know, and her, yeah. her daughter is a, you know, neon wig wearing, um, costume jewelry wearing makeup obsessive, oh, that's awesome. which was very much like me as a little girl. And my mother was earthy, um, and didn't like those things. And so, you know, a lot of times we, we sculpt ourselves in, in opposition to our parents or the world around us or whatever. Mm. Oh, tell me more about that. I was reading a little bit in one of your essays about growing up, uh, you wore, you say you like hid in baggy shirts and casual slouches. And I think you talked about, was it your mom you were talking about with the beige flats? <laughs> yeah, then my, my, I think I described <laughs> my mother of the endless beige flats. Yes, that was very funny and sounds, um, I feel like I could picture it. She's so, and she laughed at that. She loved that description of herself. Oh, gosh. Um, when I was a little girl, I was obsessed with sparkle. It just was like a fish underwater and just loved it. My mother was like, who is this little girl? Because my mother was like a 70s, no makeup wearing, corduroy pants, turtleneck. Um, and I was like, like I wanted to be a, like a star or cheerleader or some kind of like, I just, I was just obsessed with performance and dance and stuff. Um, mm. But I hit puberty at really early, at like 10. And it gave me a sense of discomfort in my body that I, I kind of never got over. And I started really hiding in my clothes because I felt like the bigger the clothes, well, I think a lot of people feel this way, the bigger the clothes, the less they'll see me, which is Mm. not a good thing to think because the bigger the clothes, the more conspicuous you become. But I didn't see it that way. I thought, well, they'll never see me. (laughs) So my clothes became very baggy. And then I had an alternate problem of being kind of a middle-class kid in a pretty upper-class neighborhood. And so there was like brand consciousness, label consciousness, I just, there were various ways that I was trying to hide and how that translated by the time I got to college. So I went to college in the nineties and it was that grunge era 
So it's a very specific time in fashion, you know, because you've got these like big flannel shirts and all of a sudden women were wearing men's clothes, which I thought was really cool because yeah. as much as I liked sparkle and all that, see, I think one of the things to remember too, is that we contain multitudes. So like, I just told you that I love sparkle, but like I totally had tomboy phases uh-huh. and I go through like, I'll, you know, go camping. I don't put on makeup for like months at a time. So like all these things are true at the same time. So I loved my tomboy phase. It was super fun. I loved wearing men's clothes. I thought I was really cute. <laughs> I, thought it, I don't think guys thought it was really cute. But I thought it was really cute. And that's um, all that matters. It, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would go through my dad's clothes. My dad's like six feet tall and I'm like five foot two. And he was just like, what is going on with my daughter coming home from college? And I would wear his jeans and these giant flannel shirts. And I just felt so cute and little. Um, And I think at the time I was really self-conscious about my weight. So feeling little felt important to me. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that was that was college and it was super fun and I would just drink and, you know, I feel like all of college feels like one long elastic waistband, you know, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like everything fit and like just accommodated whatever I put inside myself. I just drank as much as I wanted and I just ate as much as I wanted and I had dieted a lot through high school. I definitely had like a borderline eating disorder uh, it, it was really more culturally informed like I don't think that I would have been diagnosed with anorexia in any other, but I think half my half my middle school would have been diagnosed with anorexia if that makes sense yeah like, the way that we were behaving was so normalized and like just crazy and calorie counting and like I would drink like eight Diet Cokes a day, which was just nonsense. I mean, what were we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but I had been so calorie conscious. And so then by the time I got to college, it was just like, it was like endless spring break. And <sighs> I loved it. But that's also when I started to have real problems with drinking. Okay. Wow. That's so interesting, especially when you talk about like how culturally like I don't know if you'd say culturally celebrated or just normal it was to count calories to drink eight diet cokes a day and whatnot and like kind of what that means just because now it's talked about so much more than I can (laughs) imagine it was back then that just I don't know it's so interesting and how kind of like did you feel like you were trying to kind of hide yourself and make yourself smaller during those times and then when you got to college it was kind of like your time to like just let it all out well the the obsession in the 80s was thinness thinness Mm -hmm. it was definitely about skinniness and I think a couple things are going on there culturally Uh one thing is there's this aerobics obsession that's hit the culture you know you have to remember that we didn't used to have gyms and aerobics like they were kind of a new invention oh wow Um, you know 
people used to actually work for a living. And so like they'd actually physically manually labor work. <laughs> and so they didn't have to work out. And so by the eighties, you've got this workout culture that helps people stay in shape. And it's just this obsession. I mean, everybody had the Jane Fonda workout. I had this thing called the Kathy Smith workout. I did it after school every day. Like, did I think I was making myself smaller, like in the like feminist sense? No, not at all. I thought I was making myself awesome because oh. I understood thinness as awesome. And mm. so you wanted to get um, thin so that you could wear a certain size. I mean, it's all sort of, again, it's just like sort of derangement, but like, I think I was like a size six and I wanted to be a size four or something. And I think there was a, there's like a contagion. What, what would I, what's the word that I would use to describe this? A like contagion uh, exhilaration about it. Like my friends were doing it. Mm. And so like, I'm going to do it too. Like, I remember my best friend would like, she would like chew sugar-free gum and it had like two calories and then she'd go <laughs> run around the block because she wanted to burn off her two calories. Oh, I wow. Mean, honestly, you could say this was like sickness and I guess it is. It was also bored suburban kids like that had nothing else to do. Like we were shopping and we were counting our calories and we were talking about teenage heartthrobs and, you know, we were, if, you know, nobody was getting hospitalized in, in my, in my group circle there, there actually, there was a girl I remember at school that, that lost control of her bowels because she, um, she was so, she was so anorexic. Um, and I felt and she had to leave school. It was a really sad story. Yeah. It, was, it was the first story I remember thinking like, oh God, like this is really bad. There was a Karen Carpenter story that came out. She was a she was a pop singer that died of anorexia. Are you familiar with her? I've heard her name, but I'm not super familiar with her story. She's probably the first celebrity that had that kind of story. You know, that that tragic, you know, personal drama that ended in her dying. She died of anorexia. And it's is shocking. And wow. she had been, you know, like She'd been like a Taylor Swift figure, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so anyway, that, that's, that, that was, you know, and, and Diet Coke, it was like, I liked it. I, I bragged about liking it. There was like a weird, I always thought my Diet Coke thing got echoed later in the drinking because there was a certain kind of way that I was trying to prove my toughness. Like, oh, you had five Diet Cokes. I had seven Diet Cokes. You know, uh, I, I yeah. did the same thing later with beer. Oh, you drank seven beers. Oh, I drank 10 beer. Beers. Why did I not make that plural? I don't know. <laughs> I got confused <laughs> for a bother? minute. There was a weird grammar thing that happened. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Anyway, Who needs um, grammar? Yeah. Um, it, it was, uh, again, these are all products that are being sold to you. You know, I don't know if it's still true. We used to have soft drink machines in the in the cafe in the high school cafeterias do they still have those i when i was in high school they did i don't know if they still do i think there was like a process of getting them taken away yeah i think we went through a whole kind of like hmm let's think about how we're what we're doing here because you're basically setting up these kids to be to be soft drink consumers for the rest of their life yeah um 
But we didn't think about it that way. You know, back then, I'm sure the schools were getting money from the soft drinks, whatever. I can't do this is uh, This is all coming back to capitalism in an interesting way. <laughs> it's but hard I, not to. It's hard not to. I mean, these are the bones of our society. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, um, yeah, uh, I forget where I was going with any of that, but I was (laughs) counting calories. And then when I got to college, it was just like, it was like so much fun not to worry about it. But what's, what's interesting about that is that I wasn't fully aware that I was gaining all the weight that I was and that it was what happened for me through a lot of my high school years was that I was thought I was fat, but I was pretty normal weighted. So I had this like body dysmorphia in my head. Mm -hmm. And so I was always going like, I look terrible. And then everybody's like, you look so cute. Yeah. And so when I got to college and I started gaining weight and I was like, Oh, it's probably all in my head. Cause like it always had been. Yeah. But then what happened was that I actually was gaining a lot of weight. I was looking very different. Um, I wasn't getting attention from men that I wanted. And then I was drinking more and it just sort of, um, you know, that was, that was the story of what happened to me in college. I also think that my toughness and my drinking like men and acting and behaving like men was kind of a weird thing because I thought it was going to be so cute. And then I think a lot of men were like, I don't know about that. Huh. And this is an interesting way. I mean, it sounds like so. So you had you said you have a girlfriend. Yes. Um. So I'm I'm straight. Um, uh-huh. And so that's just it's a different dynamic, you know. Uh-huh. Um. And I think there's a lot of ways in which I kind of thought guys would think what. I thought was cute. They would think was cute. And then over the years, I was like, oh, no, I I guess straight men kind of think differently than me. It turns out they're they're very different. It's so tough, especially you said this was in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that just how the genderals are talked about today. It was probably unheard of back then, which now it's like toxic masculinity is recognized. And back like, I don't know when that started. And in the 90s, there was probably and correct me if I'm wrong, but a very specific, like, this is how a guy is, and this is how a girl is supposed to be. And Well, the 90s were kind of fun and androgynous in the sense that they were very playful with gender roles. I mean, if you look at Kurt Cobain, he's wearing makeup, he's wearing black mm-hmm. nail polish, he's wearing jewelry. Um, there was a lot of stuff about that era that was playing with those things. Okay. Um, the next era, which was like the girl power era and the Spice Girls, and that was the real princess era. And that's when you got all those pink toys and you got a lot of like really girly things. In some ways, they were a reaction to the androgyny of the 90s, which I used to wear Calvin Klein's obsession for men. Like I, I wore men's cologne and all my other female friends did, too. We just thought it was cool. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember, like, I always, I always think of culture as a pendulum that goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it often is one that overcorrects for the mistakes of the last era. And so, you know, it's not like just one arrow going up, you know, it's always going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of like, all my female friends in 
in college, like we wore Doc Martens, wore, you know, wore boys clothes. So, so that stuff was all very normalized. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. got you. But, but I think I took it to an extreme with a lot of my behaviors. And I think that, um, I, I thought, and I also think that being strong and forceful in your opinions has always been a little bit of a tough thing for some men. Cause like what I would find is that men loved arguing with me and talking to me and debating me. And they just thought I was, and I was best friends with men, but they did not want to date me. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Did it seem maybe threatening to them in a way? Not at the time, but looking back, I wonder now, you know, okay. and I, I would, you know, if I asked, I, I, if I asked my guy friends now, like, why did you not want to date me? I think they'd be like, well, you, you know, you seemed very, um, I don't think they would say threatening. I think they would probably say like, well, you were drinking a lot. Like you were, you were having a good time. You know, I was very, I remember being very aggressive. Like I remember like grabbing men's asses and stuff like that. It was not, that's not always the, be the best look. Um, I, was, I was trying on some personas. Well, you got to try it all out. It's you do. college time. It was college. It was college. Yeah. Wow. So you said something earlier that was really interesting to me, how, um, Kind of like how I see uh, knots or trying to like things like counting calories and whatnot as trying to be smaller and almost disappear. But you were saying to you in middle school and your friends and whatnot, that was a way to be like powerful. That's so is that's how you said it, right? I said more awesome. But more yeah, awesome. OK, that's that's really interesting. That reminds me of I think it was Hillary McBride who wrote about this on how like that kind of thing is is a way for women to gain like social power back to be like paid attention to and important. Would you agree with that in a way? Well, sure. I mean, I was just trying to get attention. I mean, from men, I, I had crushes on boys and I wanted them to like me. And so uh, how do you get their attention? And it's like, I always had a weight problem. Um, I am part of that is how I'm built. And part of that it was, the, was the early puberty. And part of that was um, I developed binge eating habits um, that were kind of early echoes of my later drinking. Mm -hmm. I just would come home from school and just kind of graze in the cabinets, like eating all this food. And so I'd have to like try to crash diet to get rid of the weight. Yeah. Um, but so I was trying to be the ultimate girl. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. You wrote later about how... Oh, gosh. I think you were talking about aging, actually, but it sounds familiar with, like, if only, I think you were, if only I looked that way, no pain would wash up to my shore. Mm. Like, you were hiding from pain, in a way. I think we all are. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think that all humans want to run from their pain. And so mm -hmm. all our ideas are hot ideas about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And according <laughs> to the culture and your individual template, you know, of personality, orientation, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to choose different strategies. And my strategy, one of my strategies was around weight and appearance. And, and uh -huh. I, I think it's very common. 
It's yes. very common for, um, you know, especially straight girls growing up in Dallas, Texas in the 80s and 90s to, to figure out this strategy is that if I could just be the prettiest girl and prettiest, I don't just mean that I have fine bone structure and, you know, good contouring. I mean, that that's all of a bundle with I want to be thin and I want to be sexy, but not too sexy. And I want to be, you know, you know, taller, or I want to be this or that or whatever. I want to be like, I mean, I wanted to look like an actress is what I really wanted to look like Hollywood actress. And I had uh, the idea that was sold to me through, well, I was reading a lot of magazines. I, I, and I used to get the Victoria's Secret catalog that would come to the mailbox. I feel like I'm telling a story about the horse and buggies <laughs> in the 1850s. Um, but these were like, you know, uh, French made dresses and, and lingerie. Oh. But I used to get that catalog and I was obsessed with the women in them. There was this one woman that was like, I think her name was Emmanuel or something. She was this French woman and I've never seen a more beautiful woman. Woman. And I would like pose in the, you know, positions that she did. And it wasn't Victoria's Secret wasn't just lingerie at the time. They also sold like normal clothes, like dresses mm. and stuff. So um, I was obsessed with it. And, you know, I think you just you get this delusion or fantasy. I think either word is equally correct that um, that if you were that person, then you would be happy. Yeah. And it's one of these beautiful things about America that's also like crushingly tragic. Mm -hmm. That is just like, we all have this idea that we can become something. We can become that girl, that woman, that man, that boy, whatever it is, whatever our idea is of the perfect person. You know, because we have this aspirational fantasy of being able to improve ourselves. And, um, you know, where other countries, they're like, nope, you're a farmer. You know? <laughs> and we're like, no, I'm going to be in the Victoria's Secret yes. catalog. Yes, oh my gosh, <laughs> cover of it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. And yeah. that kind of ties into what you were saying, I think, before we were recording about the podcast you're going to release later this year about the, um, yeah. the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Yeah, very similar story, you know. Um <clears throat> The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders started in Dallas in 1972, which is the same year as uh, Title IX. It's the same year as Deep Throat. Um, so all these kind of strains in, in women's lives are starting at the same mm -hmm. time. And I was five years old in Dallas, and I was obsessed with the cheerleaders. You know, like I'd never seen... Women so beautiful. Uh, there was this poster that you'd see around Dallas, and I, my mom was just like, what's going on? Like, who is this child? Because my mom was, um, first of all, we came from the East Coast. We came from the Philadelphia area, and we'd moved to Dallas, so Texas was kind of a foreign country yeah. to us. And my mom was like this sort of earthy therapist in clogs. <laughs> and, you know, she had studied language like German and you know she loved classical music and she just had this daughter that was like obsessed with pop music and sparkle and the cheerleaders and it was just it's one of those strange things I and I think so much about like how much of that is me being shaped by the landscape 
i.e. living in a city like Dallas that is full of shopping malls and full of beauty pageants. And how much of that is just my personality? Because I turn out to have like a much more theatrical, um, expressive personality than, than she does, as some people do. That's a really good question. That's kind of just the whole nature versus nurture yeah. thing right there. It's Yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's endlessly fascinating, and you can never answer mm-hmm. it. You can never get down to the root of, like, what causes this and what causes this, because we're this complex, like, everything causes everything, you know? Like, all of it's acting on you yeah. at once. You're a product of genetics. You're a product of culture you're a product of of um well those are the two big ones but you're you know your family of origin and your friends and and you know the movies that you watch and the music that you listen to um and the products that you're sold and all of those things become you and so then it's so interesting that within that you you know we become obsessed with like finding our authentic Uh selves like what is our authentic self and it's like that's a I mean I said it in a funny voice I think it's actually a noble question um but it's also kind of an impossible question because it's like that's this idea that there's like one authentic self inside of us but we're like I don't know about you I've been so many different people in in the same body I mean that's a kind of amazing beautiful thing about this body is that it's it's seen so many different protagonists (laughs) like (laughs) I just when I when I did uh, my, my book was called blackout and and part of one of the things I did was to put together like a, a collection of all these pictures of me over the years. And you just see me at all these different weights and all these different, like sometimes my hair is short and sometimes it's super long. And sometimes I look like a tomboy and sometimes I look like a, like a kind of beauty pageant contestant and, you know, like, and I'm this drunk, you know, it's so interesting to me, all the, all the different seasons that a, that a human being contains. Oh my gosh, I can't get over that question too that you asked, like how much of that is culture and how much is just you? Oh wow, that's like really making me think about myself in a different way now. I know, it's like staring into the void. You just can't, I mean, because I I started thinking this around the time I started wondering about alcoholism and whether I was an alcoholic and what alcoholism Uh means, which is like a whole other like, you know, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, basket of yeah, snakes. Sounds perfect. Um, <laughs> that's what I'll come up with. Um, but, uh, you know, alcoholism or a substance use disorder or whatever you want to call it is, is usually just a combination of genetics and culture. And so then that got me thinking about how pretty much everything is like, the, the more you read, the more you're like, oh, everything is that. And then you start realizing like, Okay, and then I'm this mix of my mother and my father, like this this DNA mix of of that this side and that side, and then I'm this mix of Dallas and Austin, the two cities that I that I kind of came of age within, a teenager in Dallas, college student in Austin. They're very different cultures here in Texas, oh. um, and so you know it's it's that stuff is just endlessly fascinating, mm-hmm. and then you can never answer the question, which means you just can keep asking. Yeah, it's it. just a a whole philosophical just tangled up mess in my brain (laughs) basket of snakes snakes. (laughs) well well, tell me so you stopped drinking five years ago you said like officially 10 years ago 
10. Okay, what did what did that look like? Like, why did you, what brought you there? I'm sure it's a whole thing, but yeah. like, what yeah. are pieces of the yeah, thing? There's a, <laughs> there's a book. I got to read it. Oh my goodness. Um, I loved alcohol. It was one of the first things that made me feel at home in my body. I took to it very naturally. A lot of people talk about having to make themselves like alcohol. I never understood that. It was so... It was just like, oh, this fixes it. Like, that was yeah. it. Like, that was it. I always think about it as, like, finding God for me. Like, I'll read these reports of the saints, like, being pierced by divine light. And I'm like, that was me in, like, a keystone light. <laughs> yeah, I, re I really I had a very low stakes. Oh, very low bar for, for spiritual awakening. <laughs> um, domestic brew was perfectly fine for me. Um, but the problem was and there were a lot of problems the problem was that I could never quite stop mm. you know I could never drink just enough uh I have a I have a friend who wrote a story that said we're we're born two beers shy of happiness oh wow and it's it's a beautiful line and I was always shooting that overshooting that by about 10 beers yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I I never could because, you know, th the thing about alcohol is that it just recommends more alcohol to itself. You know, like, it, it, it kind of persuades you, like, why don't you yeah. keep going? Like, two was good, wouldn't four be yeah. great? <laughs> and so I just, I, I never could drink just enough. I always drank too much. And at first, it was no big deal. But around college, it started to be a problem with my friends. And they, I would black out. That's why the book is called Blackout. And, and Blackout is a is an extended period of amnesia. It's alcohol-induced amnesia. Not everybody experiences it, but about 50% of drinkers can. And women are particularly prone That's to so it. That's scary. And it's one of the reasons why drinking like, like a man is not such a hot idea. Mm. Um, so I had this problem with blacking out and I couldn't remember what I'd done the night before and you know but I was still talking and walking around and interacting with people and they'd say like do you not remember doing this and I'd be like no and it was real horrifying you know it was like it was like I had some evil twin that would come out and scurry around the house and offend people when I when I the, the conscious mind had gone to, to bed so that was a real demon. And I was 21 when that started happening pretty bad, but I was so young. I mean, I was just like, I can't quit drinking. And so you do the thing where you're like, well, I'll just quit drinking whiskey. Mm. And then like, and then I'll quit drinking vodka. And then I'll quit drinking tequila. And then da da da, -da you keep going down the list. And you're bargaining. And, and I wanted to believe that I could drink like a normal person. And so I spent the better part of 15 years after that, trying to figure that out and failing ultimately, um, or just giving up ultimately. Uh, when I was 35, I just, I mean, the thing is, why did I quit drinking? I quit drinking because it wasn't working for me anymore. Mm. The magic was not working. The, the thing that it was supposed to do, which was to give me the peace in my body, like I just it didn't do it anymore. And I was, I was having a lot of trouble because I was starting to alienate friends. I had been alienating friends for a while. I was having trouble keeping relationships. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for this. It's not just the alcohol. The alcohol was an amplifying agent. Mm -hmm. And it, one of the things that it was doing was that it, I wanted to drink to be closer to people. 
and it was keeping me further away from them. That's relatable. Oh, man. And I couldn't bridge that. I, I wanted that. I wanted them. I just wanted to be close to people. I just wanted to be loved by people. And it was doing the opposite. So it wasn't working. It was making me further away from people, and it was making me more lonely, and it was making me more estranged, and I, I, I couldn't, I tried everything to keep it. I really, I really tried everything. I mean, I think from 21 to 35 is just me going down a checklist of what about this? And, you know, because that's 14 years, like there's a certain amount of time where like, I'm, it's, I'm, man, I'm maintaining pretty well. I had a good uh-huh. time. You know, I'm I'm different than some of the other people you might read in the sobriety memoir genre because I don't I don't speak ill of alcohol. Yeah. It doesn't work for me, but I think it's one of the great leisure drugs that we've invented. Yeah. And that's why every culture makes it. Because it's it's really quite amazing what it does. But you have to be careful. And some of us there's a genetic predisposition and there's a cultural influence and there are certain lifestyles that will that will hold more drinking and mine was one of them so i was a journalist it was a heavy drinking profession i lived in new york city where the bars were open till 4am and you could buy alcohol all night mm. so there's not a lot of bumpers on your behavior <laughs> there and it's oh. it can be very dangerous and you can get a cab to drive you oh, home yeah. you know um, so you don't have to worry about driving drunk. Of course, this is before Uber. Now everybody yeah. has that. But, um, but those, and, and when you look at the trajectory of drinking, like I would study like drinking patterns and drinking falls off in people's life after they have kids. It's not when they get married because they usually keep partying with their friends yeah. or whatever. It's when they have kids. And so I didn't have kids. And that wasn't intentional. I always wanted children, but my life didn't take that shape. And so I'm not saying that I became an alcoholic because I didn't have kids. That's (laughs) way too... I'm sure that's what somebody listening would be. Oh, yeah. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. It's a complex series of reasons why this happened, but... But that's one of the things that might have turned my behavior or it might not have. Because believe me, when I ended up in a recovery program, I met plenty of mothers who were like, yeah, I had kids and it didn't oh, stop wow. me. So, so who knows? We're all sort of the same story and different stories at mm-hmm. once. But my story was, it was doing the opposite of what I wanted for my life. I could see that if I quit that if I kept drinking, see, I actually thought that I could keep drinking. I didn't think I was going to die or end up in an asylum or anything. I just thought I'm going to be this pathetic little lush that somebody has to carry out of the bar. And then somebody puts me in a cab and I wake up in bed going, how did I get here? And it, it wasn't really a big dramatic tragedy. It was like one of these like tiny little, tiny little tragedies in a human life that I probably could have sustained for 20, 30 years. And I, I just didn't want that for myself. And I I was very, very, very scared to quit drinking. 
very scared because even though I told you all this stuff, I did not understand how to be friends with people without alcohol. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to be sexual without alcohol. I didn't know how to be funny, how to write, how to be intimate, how to be with myself. Everything I knew had been built around that superstructure. And so I didn't know how to do anything and I was so scared. I thought I was just going to be lonely for the rest of my life. But, I, but that's where I got to, you know, it was like, all right, I got to try this something yeah. else. Wow. Is that kind of where you say you're, you started really recognizing the relationship with your body when you, when you got to that point? I remember um, I was about three or four months sober, maybe less than that even. And I was, they tell you to like, do something nice for yourself. Take care of yourself. Have you time? And again, I'm making a mocking voice. That's a perfectly noble thing yeah. to tell you. Um, yeah, like, like, so they did. And I went to get my hair cut. And they put me in, the woman was this cool Brooklyn hairstylist, you know. And she put me in front of this full-length mirror, and she's cutting my hair. I remember looking at myself and being like, I want to rip off my own uh. face. Like, I just remember that voice, and I don't know why that phrase, like, I want to rip off my own face. I had this, like, flash of, like, self-destruction, and I was just like, whoa, I need to address this. Like, I'm, I'm in such toxic self-hatred right now. And the drinking has been anesthetizing that. It's been covering that up so that I didn't really, I would always be like, oh, I'm hungover, I wanna die. You know how people speak like real, they have that real arsenic tone when they're hungover? <laughs> you know, like, ah, oh, this world sucks. Like, and it's funny. Like, I always thought it was really funny and I was being really bitter and Dorothy Parker-ish. <laughs> yes. And then the alcohol got taken away and it was like, oh no, that, it's like I've been soaking in arsenic. Oh, wow. You know? And like, and like that, I hate myself and I've, why? Cause I'm a good person. I've had so many mixed up thoughts about myself over the years, but I've never thought I was a bad person because I knew I'm just like really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a really nice person. I, have, I had a really nice mom Aww. and it's like, I, I just, I inherited that and I am very glad to carry on the legacy. It's just it's who I am. But I, why did I hate myself so much? And so you kind of have to go through the business of like, who did this? Did I do this? What part did I play? Like there's there's outside forces, right? So those are your, so those are your like, like we can rattle them off together, right? The the capitalism or the rape culture or the patriarchy or the market forces or the, the you know, all of those things that are acting on mm -hmm. you, right? And then there's the part of like, what part did I play? Yeah. What part? And And for me at that time, the first part that I could see was that I was... I kept drinking and the drinking was reinforcing this intense sense of self-loathing and inability to get something done. I would lie to myself all the time, meaning I would say I'll quit and I wouldn't, meaning I would say I'll do this and I didn't. And so just on a very fundamental level, I wasn't keeping my own promises and I was 
So that was a very, it's a very long walk yeah. out of that, out of that, uh, barber's chair. Oh my gosh. Uh, what a yeah. moment. And, and yeah. And it, it was, you know, just learning to tolerate myself and my own shape. I'm not even talking about my weight. I'm talking about my, whoever I am in the world, you know, cause I've been so many different things, but yeah, you just learn how to be alone with yourself in a sense. That's mm -hmm. such a, such an honest and true and just human way of talking about that. That's very, very cool. And I get so interested in people's journeys with this kind of thing because it takes a lot of, I think, from my experience and opinion, like so much, um, oh, what do you call it? Oh man, self-awareness. That should not have been that hard to think of. <laughs> But it, it takes so much self-awareness and like the ability to like ask why and to ask who am I and all those big deep questions that at least like, my, I mean, I don't know, my experience, like I said before, I'm super new to the drinking conversation about like stopping and what that means and what that looks like and what was alcohol doing for me and what did I look to it for yeah. and stuff. And it's just like, I almost feel like, it helped me not have to answer those questions in a way. And it helped me not, not mm -hmm. have to look in the full length mirror and hate who I see. Yep. Like it just, it hid me, it shielded yep. me from that, which is helpful at the time. But yep. like, yep. Yeah. I think, yep. Survival strategies, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I think I'm always very grateful to alcohol for what it did for me. Cause I felt like it carried me for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. My, my therapist actually kind of talks similarly to that of like looking at things like alcohol or even, even, I mean, the way she talks to me a lot of the time about like my eating disorders, like looking to it and honoring it for like that got you through this really hard time in your life or that helped you survive this period. And like, that was very helpful for you. Then it's less helpful. Now we don't need it anymore in this phase, yep. but like, rather looking at it and demonizing it, like saying, oh, yeah. this was useful then. And that's, how, yeah. yeah, I, I agree with your therapist. I, that's how I look at, at those things that they, that they helped me, that they, they were, they were protection or things that I needed then. Yeah. And that's such a, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, um, no. Oh, I was gonna say it's such a beautiful way of like developing compassion for yourself which is not easy not easy at all like I don't know I carry so much shame that's like my thing which so many people do I heard a, a saying once that that about recovery that women come in with shame and men come in with anger oh and I'm sure like, like any broad stereotype, like, like I'm sure that does, is not like, that's not entirely true. I'm sure some men come in with shame, men with, but, but it has to do in some ways with how we are socialized to identify certain feelings, mix of things, why this might happen. But yeah, women talk about shame, 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 shame. And then men are just like so angry. <laughs> and and I, I sometimes feel like part of it is like you have to get the other side to it. You have to figure out that the shame, you also have to get in touch with like your anger. Because like I came in with so much shame, but I was like, I'm not angry at all. Hmm. 
and there, then there I am sitting in front of my reflection going, I want to rip off my face, but I didn't recognize that as anger. Um, it was all like anger pointed inward, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And, um, the shame portion of it is, is powerful. And I know that everybody has a, I never recommend anybody do a, you know, quit a certain way because everybody one needs to find their own path. Mine was through a 12 step program. I didn't want it to be that way, but it was. And one of the things that really, really was powerful to me was watching people be so honest. Like a minute ago, you said about something I said, you know, like that was so honest. I felt like I watched other people do that. And then that gave me permission to get really honest about what I was doing and how I was feeling. And I could see that honesty that that kind of gut hit honesty was going to help me get out. It's going to help me get free in a way that alcohol had once. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That, that's giving me so much to think about right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's kind of like now we're not using alcohol as a strategy, but we're using like honesty and humanness and, deeper connection of like listening to people share that honesty as that connection or as that strategy because part yeah exactly because part of why I was using alcohol is because it's like this bonding agent so like if you go into a bar you can be friends with somebody immediately and you can like tell them your secrets by the end of the the conversation and I really thought like how am I going to do that ever again but like Our conversation right now is a perfect example of how you can completely do that without alcohol. Because what have we used? We've just been very honest with each other. And so, you know, we're also probably in our personalities predisposed to it. But at the same time, it's like we're using this thing, which is this vulnerability, this truth about ourselves to kind of seal the intimacy between us. So that even though you and I don't know each other, we never met each other before this conversation. We're having the kind of barstool conversation that people drink in order to have. That's very true. Yes. When I realized that I could do that without alcohol, it was like a high. It was like, oh, I can do this and not be falling off my bar stool, you know? That's empowering. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Exactly. You don't have to drink anything in order to get the kind of high, the kind of, because all I wanted to do was feel free with myself, connected with other people. Because the rest of it's just like, why do you want it? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just like, like I used to, I mean, I used to drink like seven or eight drinks and it's like having eight slices of cake. Mm. Like who would do that? Yeah. I mean, okay. I would I mean, probably cake's do good. that, but <laughs> cake's yeah, pretty cake's good. really good. Okay. I shouldn't, but you yeah, know what I mean. like they wouldn't serve it to <laughs> That's you. That's not super <laughs> They'd normal. Be like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh my gosh. Now I want cake. <laughs> oh no. I know it's the oh, best. It's the best. My gosh. But th- that makes so much sense. And I feel like there's so much beauty in that where you, you say like you drank because you wanted freedom and connection with others. And it's so mm-hmm. like interesting to me because that's my reason for doing so many things. That was yeah. 
my reason in a weird way of like my eating disorder. It's like any kind of strategies. Like you said earlier, I think um, we all want, you probably said it in a different way, but we want the same thing in different things at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, kind of like at the heart, we're looking for that same like connection and freedom, but we all have these different ways of finding it. Totally. Oh man. Wow. Sarah, this has been an incredible conversation. <laughs> I, I have two more questions for you. Is that one of them is on topic. The other one is um, very off topic. That's cool. <laughs> okay. The, the first question I have for you is um, what are, what are ways that you, I guess like today, um, what are ways that you connect with yourself and feel connected to your body? What are like different strategies you have now that help you with that on days when it's hard? Yeah, I like to do different like yoga and stretching exercises. Those are always, I just think yoga is such an interesting practice because it's like, it's like the discovery of what your body can do and how it can bend and kind of carrying your own weight. Like I'm always interested in that. Like what, how much can my hands bear? Like what can I do? It's just, that's all fascinating to me. Um, so I love the practice of just doing yoga in my room. I mean, I used to go to classes. I haven't gone in uh, during the pandemic, <laughs> but, um, but that always kind of brings me back to myself. Yeah. I love listening to music. I've been obsessed with pop music. Like, not, I, I have more esoteric tastes, but like, I love a Taylor oh, Swift same. song. I love a Harry Styles yes. song. Like, <laughs> Watermelon Sugar High. I love it. love it. Oh my God. I'm there all day long for that. Yes. And dancing, I, I will say, it's been hard for me to dance in sobriety. I still carry like some self-consciousness around mm -hmm. it. Like, I don't think that I look good enough or I don't do it right. Or I'm scared to be awkward, but when I'm alone, then I can do that. I don't have to, you know, I can, I can do that. I think that's still like a, like a Sarah 3.0 challenge is, um, how to dance with other people and feel that freedom. But when I'm, when the question is how to connect to yourself again, Oh, I love mm. that. I love that. I love dancing. I love singing. Um, the body is an instrument. The body is a gift. Mm. And, um, I love, I'll tell you what I've really loved. This has been a pandemic gift. Ooh, <laughs> I have just loved gardening. Oh. And I, I, I don't even own my house. <laughs> I rent a house and I just never even thought about gardening. Cause why would you garden a house that you don't even yeah. own? And then I was stuck here and I was like, well, got to do something. And I started gardening and it was just like this incredible joy to be engaged with the soil and the little doodle bugs and you know like being on the my the, my hands and knees like I was when I was a little girl and kind of pulling up vines and getting to know I felt like I was meeting my neighbors that I had like never introduced myself oh. to and I remember hearing this poet that was talking about like why do we say that we're alone when we're surrounded by trees and and life all the time you know and I was feeling very lonely during the pandemic I I 
I'm a, I'm a single person that lives alone. And, um, I just felt like I, I was connecting to my body, but I was connecting to the, to the earth. Mm -hmm. And that felt so good. Mm, That's powerful. That's like another level. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that is so, so cool. And now I have a very new never before interest in gardening. (laughs) (laughs) it's been it's been totally like a wonderful education to learn the trees and um like their names and their leaves and how you read them and stuff it's like learning a new language i love it this is random and not the last question i was talking about but have you ever taken the enneagram test and oh yes i have i forget what i am okay well if you happen to remember later email it to me because i'm super interested um i know i (sighs) think I'm not going to say what I think because it's just going to be a random memory. Um, I'll email it to you. But I remember somebody read my book and they um, asked me to take it. And then I took it and they were like, that's what I ah. thought. You are textbook. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> So whatever well, it is, I'm textbook. Now I am, I'm a seven. I don't know if how familiar you are with all of it, but... You'll just have to let me know later. Not. That's okay. Let me know later. I love stuff like that. And I've had the best time talking to you. So I'm like, I feel like I know who you are. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You're not supposed to type people. But I'm like, I want to know. Um, but okay. So anyway, my last my last and final question for you is, uh, okay, this one. Would you rather... Mm. This is very important. This is going to dictate. Oh my God. I used to love, would you rather questions when I was drinking? I was absolutely obnoxious oh with them. Gosh. Please. This oh, is delightful. I'm so excited. It's like one of my favorite oh, yeah. things to do. Oh, the best. Okay, this, is, this is the most fun now. Okay, here we go. Would you rather have pink balloons for hair only on Sundays? Mm. So Ooh. it's like every Sunday you're sporting some pink balloon hair. It doesn't matter if you want it or not. You're going out to the supermarket, pink balloons. It's just how it is. Or would you rather have a part-time job that you were stuck in for life, being a race car driver, and all your opponents are sloths, but they're driving race cars, (laughs) so it's like really weird and annoying, and they're really good, and it's a little embarrassing how good they are. That's so funny. (laughs) That's such a funny... um, Well... I've been thinking about this for a long time in my life. No, like, I'm just kidding. I've never thought about it in my life. <laughs> um, I would have to go. I mean, I was really, I'm really enchanted by the balloon yeah. look because I am a woman that loves to wear wigs and they, I didn't, I'm not aware of any balloon wigs. So this would be a totally new look mm. for me. I feel like Sundays are totally doable. Like if it was all the time, you'd be like, Oh, what about pictures? What about yeah. dating? But it's like Sunday, you, you know, in. it could just be like fun day. And then, you know, you it could be kind of exciting. And um, the only thing I worry about is popping them when I sleep, but Ooh. I figure if I'm going to, I'll work yeah. it out. And the problem with the race car driving, I love driving, but a funny thing about me is I don't really like driving very oh, fast. No. I don't like velocity too much or being out of control. So I feel like this, you know, and then the sloths, I know that's like a really big thing. People, people love them, do. but I'm sort of like, <laughs> you know, I'll stick to yeah, my cat. Do it out yeah it's there for other i don't blame you that is quite the phenomenon that i'm not fully on board with so i support that (laughs) you love wigs have you seen schitt's creek oh um 
You know, it's funny. I watched the first... Oh, this is terrible. I feel bad. I watched the first episode, and I was like, um, that's not oh, for me. Makes sense. So, all my, all my friends love it, but I just oh, didn't that makes sense. It. One of the main characters in there, which I don't know if you see it in the first episode, but is obsessed with wigs, and I find it hilarious and so cool. So, that is awesome. It... It was always like, I think it's, it's like that different personality thing, you know, like I have all these different personalities and I want to try them on. And I sort of love the, I love the instant transformation and the total impermanence of a wig. Oh yeah. Like, you know, you can, it just, if you don't like it, just take it off, you know, but it's such a different look, like so instantly. Yeah, you can just try on like different people in a sense. That's so fun. Yeah. Now I want to get a wig. That's fun. The best. Oh my gosh. Well, Sarah, thank you so, so much for giving us your time today and sharing your story and your wisdom and just having this conversation. It's been so fun and so interesting. I learned so much just now. It was so fun to talk to you and thank you for this project. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people feel a little bit more comfortable in their own skin. And that's beautiful. Thing. I hope so. Thank you for saying that. How, how can people find your work and your, your book and all the things that you would want people to know about? Where would they go? Sure. Um, so I have a website. It's just my name, sarahheppola.com. So that's Sarah with an H. So it's two H's in the middle. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, but I'm not very good at it. I'll be honest. I'm better on Instagram. Uh, that's the, the Sarah Heppola experience. Um, and, uh, then I have a book. It's called Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. And it's a memoir. It's available at all the places memoirs live. <laughs> and uh, I'm working on a second book. It's currently called Unattached, but who knows what it will be called when it's finally done. So that'll, you know, be done somewhere between now and the end of time. Okay. It's about the pace that I'm on right <laughs> now. Between an hour so. and 500 months. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. It's my best guess. That is so relatable. <laughs> Writing a book is like a whole just yeah. uncanny process. But wow, cool. Thank yes. you so much. I'm super excited to check out your book. I This is so random, but speaking of your Instagram, I think another thing that really caught my attention was you, you posted a picture of a bartender making a mocktail and then at the end of it. Or you said you're like on some kind of like journey finding the best mocktails. Is that true? So, uh, I think I was talking about how Julia Bainbridge, who is a wonderful food and drink writer, has been doing okay. that. Uh, she has been, she has, she put together a list of cocktails in a, in a non-alcoholic or zero proof cocktail book called Good Drinks, which I would recommend to anybody who's interested in playing in that genre, which is exploding with creativity and so much fun. And I did write a story for Texas Highways Magazine um, that was about the uh, growth of the Really, it's kind of kind of like the influence of the sobriety movement mm. on, and that's and again, this is another one of those funny marketing stories. <laughs> so for the longest time, like capitalism didn't care about non-drinkers; they didn't pay much attention to us. Well, now they're coming oh, for us, and they have a <laughs> lot of ways for you to spend your twenty dollars. And I have spent more money on 
drinks with no alcohol in them. I mean, it is crazy how much money I've spent. And, you know, and this is like, I want to be part of the yeah. party. I want to spend too much money on ridiculous drinks, too. <laughs> um, but it's fun and the drinks are great. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful that a lot of bars um, are re are reshaping their spaces to be inclusive towards people that don't drink with an idea that, you know, drinking is great. They, people can drink, but people that don't drink should have wonderful options too. It shouldn't be quite such a monopoly. And maybe we use bars as places to connect and hang out with each other instead of places to get loaded and turn off the world. You know, like this is a different way of thinking about it. That's so cool. And that sounds once pandemic is over. So happy to hear that that is in places options that you could still go out and do that. Yeah, we're all going to want to yes. connect. How can we oh, connect? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At the end, you said nightlife's about connection, not about booze. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so real on so many levels. But yeah, and there's a lot of people out there that are that are that are reshaping our culture. You know, like like we have this world that looks a certain way, but we can change it. And we are. Yeah. We do. Well, that is awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you again. I feel like I just want to get like all of the words out of you that I can. <laughs> it's all so good. But thank you very, very much. I'm happy to get the chance to talk and learn about you all the way down in Dallas, where it is very cold, as I said at the beginning. Well, it was, it was a great treat to talk to you. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Absolutely. Stay warm and safe, and we will talk to you later. Bye.